Hello listeners, my name is Arno and I'm the founder of Revelator Studio. Welcome to the Truth is Golden podcast. This show is about creative minds and the secret sauce behind their success. It is for people who are interested to learn about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. On this episode, we're talking to Murray Legg, founder of Murray Legg Architecture. Murray is an architect, artist, and Toronto native. We discuss growing up in Toronto, working in Texas, and how creativity is an important part of his practice. Right, welcome to the Truth is Golden. Today we are with uh, Murray Legg, architect. Hello, Murray, and thanks for being on the podcast. Sure. So how are you doing? Doing okay. You know, it's a busy day here in the office, and we're entering some, the summer season. It's pretty hot. Spend a lot of time inside and try not to spend too much time outdoors. <laughs> well, it's quite the opposite up here in Toronto. It's rainy and uh-huh. cold every day. That sounds great. <laughs> Not when you're here. <laughs> so you and I met recently through a common connection as you were in Toronto for the Doors Open event. Can you tell our listener who you are? Sure. I am an architect. I grew up outside of Toronto and lived in Toronto until I was about 19. I, I studied at the University of Toronto in the architecture program for a couple of years before transferring to the Cooper Union in New York and uh, completed my studies in architecture there. And then kind of lived between New York and Toronto for about four or five years, mostly working on uh, building projects and installation projects, public artwork, and doing some construction in in, uh, rural Ontario before I moved to Texas uh, about 20 years ago and have been practicing down here since then. I have a small architecture studio and also an interdisciplinary public art collaborative. I work with my sister, Andrea Legg, who's a visual artist who's based in New York, and my wife, Deborah Lewis, who's a cinematographer. And we do a range of different kind of interdisciplinary projects, but um, mostly sort of large-scale public art projects. We have projects throughout the country and sometimes in Canada as well. So I want to get back to that a little later, but um, before we do, growing up just outside of Toronto, what were you like as a kid? (laughs) Um, I grew up in rural Ontario. Uh, So it was was actually really close to Toronto. It's a small village called Whitevale. And um, I remember we could get downtown in about 20 minutes. Probably takes longer than that now. Uh, it's still in the country, but it's quickly being, you know, the, the kind of s- suburbs are quickly being kind of like eaten. But this was like a really wonderful little little village. It's still actually, if you drive through it now, the only difference between the time when I grew up there and, and now is that the trees are much bigger. But it was about 150 families. Uh, it's a historic village. Duffins Creek runs through the middle of it. Uh, it's, a, it's in a valley and it's a mill town. So there's a... Uh, Wilson and Sons Mill is in the middle of the town, surrounded by farmland. The village was like a mix of um, farmers, uh, plumbers, that sort of thing. And then also people that used the village as a bedroom community. My father was a, an engineer. My mother was a nurse. So they worked in Toronto and commuted. But yeah, I mean, it was very much I grew up kind of playing in the, you know, the river and 
climbing the cliffs and that sort of thing. Never really interested in architecture. The, the architecture school in Toronto had the reputation of being like extremely difficult to get into. Um, and I had to pick something when I was in high school. I actually wanted to be a filmmaker. So just decided that just as a placeholder, I would, I would go to architecture school while I figured out what film school to go to purely because it seemed interesting and, and somebody had told me that it was like impossible to get into. So as a challenge, I applied and I got in expecting to kind of research film schools and then move on from there, but kind of fell in love with architecture while I was in my first year. So that dream of becoming a filmmaker never really came back to you later on? Uh, I mean, I always had a kind of naive idea that I could do both. Um, but, uh, I mean, doing either well requires a tremendous amount of like concentration and, and effort and time on a practical level. So no, but I, I mean, I don't think, I don't really have the desire to do that anymore. I mean, I feel like though that kind of like creative or urge is fulfilled through the other work we do, which, you know, the building projects, but then we do a lot of other projects that are non-building related. So um, my wife is a filmmaker. She teaches at the university. Uh, so I have a kind of vicarious, I get to kind of experience it vicariously. We have many friends and family and clients are filmmakers too. So um, we're, you know, closely aligned with the film community. The film community actually in Austin is really vibrant. Like Detour Film Production, Rick Linklater's uh, film production companies based here. We have a lot of friends that have worked on the detour films. If any parallels, what would you draw um, between filmmaking and architecture? Mm, yeah, good question. I mean, the obvious ones are, I guess, that, you know, it's really like a kind of team sport um, that requires, depending on the kind of films you're making. I mean, there are definitely films you can make with, you know, a handful of people, but both of both filmmaking and architecture, you're kind of working on, you know, single projects. They, they sometimes take, you know, they take a long time. They can take years to, to accomplish. Um, and, and you're also working with, you know, often hundreds of people, even on a small building project, there might be a hundred people that touch it. So it has this kind of like interesting, both of them seem to me have this kind of interesting quality of sort of becoming much bigger than you are as an individual. Um, which is a challenge too, because sometimes it can feel like you don't have a kind of control, but they, but they take on this quality of a kind of living thing that has its own cultural ecosystem and a set of influences that, that kind of transcends in a sense, a sing, kind of idea of a singular voice or singular vision. That being said, I think, you know, I, I believe in architecture that has that kind of specificity to it that, uh, you know, um, that you can determine a kind of like very personal kind of idiosyncratic voice in the work while at the same time has this kind of like broader kind of reach. Uh, so, so it has this kind of complexity to it, I guess, that, that I really find kind of interesting and, and kind of intriguing, you know, in terms of the scale. I guess when I was younger, um, and I guess this is the other thing that I think is interesting, there's... Like I was more interested in filmmaking from a kind of the way it creates an immersive environment. Like you, you, there's a certain mood or tone that is conveyed by a filmmaker. Like I think Spike Jones is a great example of that, that movies like convey a certain feeling. Like if you look at his early Lakai ads or there's a certain mood or tone that he can convey. 
And I think architecture is like that too, like beyond the sort of like drier analytic terms, you know, successful architecture can convey a certain feeling or a certain tone that is, um, and be transporting. Like there's that cliche in filmmaking that, you know, you're taken to another place by the movie. Well, that happens right momentarily while you're watching a film, but I, I think in really successful architecture, it has that same quality that you visit a building and it can, can really be, um, create its own kind of like atmosphere and its own kind of tone and feeling just like the way a film does it through, you know, cinematography, through music, through writing. I mean, architecture has that same ability when it's good I think, to create a certain kind of like immersiveness, immersive experience. Yeah. So relating that to your own practice, um, to me, it appears that you like to play a lot with lights and viewpoints. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think light is something that has taken a while for me personally as an architect to, I guess, understand earlier. And, and I guess through my training at the Cooper Union, which was like very conceptually based work, um, often the projects that we uh, created there at Cooper were not, at least when I was there in the 90s with Haydick and, and Raymond Abraham and Peter Eisenman. Were, were all of uh, my teachers, Todd Williams, to a certain extent, although Todd was a practicing architect. So he, he was one of the few architects that had like a legitimate practice going um, and, and sort of understood that. But, you know, Haydick and Abraham and Eisenman, they're very conceptually based. So, so they're, the, the projects tended to not be building projects or more like kind of you know, spatial explorations or experiential explorations, that sort of thing. So that's sort of where I came from. So I think the early projects tended to be more uh, abstract in their conception, right? Like you look at the site analysis and you derive a kind of building form from some kind of ab level of kind of abstracted analysis. But, you know, I've been practicing architecture for 20 years. We've, we're building a lot. Um, and I live in a place where there is a tremendous amount of sunlight, which seems like a really simple kind of notion. So just through having built and observed the effect of light, like you can walk onto a construction site when they've got the building kind of dried in, say, and, it, and all the windows are still kind of covered and there might be like a single hole facing south and the sun is piercing into the building. And just those kind of like very uh, really visceral kind of tactile experiences with the buildings and observing, observing light has sort of led me to to kind of focus on that more as a kind of developed or thought out instrument working working with the buildings and i mean it's such a cliche right like the main you know material of architecture is light but it really is and and it is kind of extraordinary in texas that uh i mean we have there's so much light so controlling it is is a real challenge we have several projects now where we're experimenting with different ways in which we can shape light and and kind of and, and kind of control it a lot, of, a lot of the practice of contemporary architecture, especially like in Austin, or for offices like ours that are design oriented, is is you know kind of residential or residential projects. And I mean, craft is important, but there is a certain kind of preoccupation with materiality. I think in contemporary architecture now, it's like kind of fancy materials and fancy detailing. And if you kind of shift that focus away from the materiality of the architecture to to light it has a way of kind of like ameliorating that i guess kind of tension there well materiality has become a bit of a buzzword right it's um, right it's a term that 
a lot of architects employ, so it's become a bit devoid of meaning. Um, right. What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Like, I think at times the, the kind of like obsession with materiality, and I would say craft too. Like, I think that there is a certain kind of like a preoccupation and obsessive obsession with with a level of craft. So, so I think sometimes like overly crafted or or kind of a like obsessive um, kind of preoccupation with material can take the place for shaping of the space or for a kind of ideas that are broader in architecture. But I just think it's like harder to do. I mean, there, those aspects like this, the feeling of a space or, you know, working with light, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a cardboard box or if it's made of marble. I mean, you're, you can shape light with, with those materials. And, and, and in our office, we're, we, you know, I think a lot of projects, you know, what the budgets, you know, at a certain level, there's a, it seems like the expectations for the buildings are always ahead of the actual budget. And um, what, what we try to do is like, we actually really love working with like really simple materials. So we all, we'll try to avoid like exotic hardwoods and stick with like Douglas fir, say, or, fr or like we're working on a, on a pretty complex residential project now and has a custom window system. And we were able to convince a client to use like select structural Douglas for stick framing, which is a very rough kind of material. It's not normally used for kind of refined higher end architecture, but we, we like to kind of like try to, to use these like kind of everyday or regular, more regular materials in place of the kind of exotic materials. It also pushes us to try to develop a certain kind of refinement that goes beyond just being, you know, getting caught in that trap of, especially with the higher budget projects, getting caught in that trap and going towards, you know, the fancier materials, uh, wall naturally. You know, like for instance, we have done projects with custom windows that were made of bronze, you know, and um, we do a lot of work with steel. I can understand why bronze was a traditional material used for windows and for hardware because it's, you know, it's, it's pliable. It's easy to work with relatively easy to work with. And it's like, will last forever and you don't need to treat it, <laughs> you know? So, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're interesting questions, but again, we're, we're sort of more interested in how we can shape, you know, a feeling of a space, light and quality and kind of, sh and, and, and work with materials that are um, a little more common. So do you have a, a specific creative process that you go through for each project? How does that work for you? Um, I mean, I don't know if each prop probably, I don't know if I've ever gone back to kind of analyze it. Um, architecture is kind of a complicated, like there's a complex kind of cocktail. <laughs> you know, you have, you're already given a lot, right? Like it's not like a tabula rasa kind of process the way say, you know, a painter or a um, novelist would would be kind of faced with that. Like every project, you already have like a site, which, you know, is usually pretty complex, either topographically or culturally or, you know, uh, already imbued with like, if it's in a city, layers of code and, and again, history and, and zoning. And you, all, you also have, um, a you know, client, which usually comes with like very specific needs and ideas. You know, we really feel really fortunate right now that a lot of our clients are coming to us because of the work that we do. They, they you know, are excited about architecture and design. That they have, um, you know, they want to work with somebody who is uh, also, you know, 
exploring and, you know, kind of excited about architecture. So there's already like a lot there to think about and to work with. And then you also, you know, we, we have an office and we try to kind of work equally collaboratively on everything together as a group. So often early in the projects, you know, we're kind of discussing them as a group and, and, and beginning to kind of think about things and, and test ideas. Like, so that it starts that way. It's a lot of kind of conversation and a lot of, um, of looking and, you know, spending time on the site, looking at the site, talking to the client. So that's already to me, it's like a creative, whether you haven't even started to draw yet, you're just really thinking. And, and, you know, it's like hanging out at a party where you're talking to a lot of people <laughs> or something. So, so the building projects are typically like that. Like you're already a law, a long way there. There's a lot of thought and a lot of ideas before you even start drawing. Um, even when the a client will first approach you, you know, you might get an email or it might be a phone call and they'll say, you know, I have the site and I have, I want to build, you know, whatever it is, it might be a house or it might be a church or something. So you're already presented with a lot of material there, which is quite, quite interesting. Then, then the specific tools, like we try to do a lot of physical modeling. We, we try to build with physical, like study models. Um, and we, you know, we did an experiment recently where we tried to lay off the three D three. Like, of course we have a lot of digital tools. We love the digital tools. Um, but we tried to lay off like renderings and 3d models and just design it all with physical models, which is kind of an interesting experiment. Um, so yeah, physical modeling. And then of course, you know, we, on most projects, just for practical purposes, you know, we'll do, I, I draw a lot by hand. I, I also do digital, a lot of digital modeling, like I'll work in SketchUp and physical models, but I really kind of rely on the staff to do, um, most of the heavy lifting when it comes to the drawing, which means I end up actually, um, as offices evolved, I used to spend a lot of time designing while I would say doing construction drawings. Like I would do the construction drawings. I would know I would have like a lot, all these issues to work out in the design. And I would use that as an opportunity to kind of like work through those. Might be working on a project for like eight hours. But now, you know, we have 10 or 15 projects going. I tend to draw a lot, like I'll, I'll sketch basically, you know, by hand and or I'll draw like full scale details. Um, but, but it's a, it's a very collaborative process. Like we're, we're constantly working as a group on all levels of the design and questioning too. I mean, we're always reevaluating, um, what we're doing. Uh, so is collaborative how you would define, uh, your company's culture? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, uh, I think in the end, like it does come down to me to make the final call on something, but I do think try, we try to like promote like a culture of like trying to be really open and, and to have a convert, like just my own personality. Like I questioning everything all the time. So, um, literally questioning it, like questioning in my head, even when it's under construction, was that right? Should we've done it differently? And also like trying to decide, even if it's something like the placement of a light fixture, you know, is it six inches this way or six inches that way? It's just like a constant, like, I just don't have that gene where to say, this is the way it's going to be done and push that forward. It's like, I'll make a decision the next day, decide to go back. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then I try to promote that sort of question in the office too. So I'll literally ask the question, like, should we do this or this? And then, and then, you know, in the office, everybody will, I try to keep it open so that anyone can contribute on any level of the project um, and question, you know, and it's just more, it's, a, I think it makes for, uh, especially when you've got a lot of work going on, it makes for, um, you just want, you want to be able to like, not leave any stones unturned, I guess, and make sure you're kind of on the right track. That being said, you know, like anything, you have to, at a certain point, you just have to decide this is it and just move forward with it and get it done. Uh, it can kind of drive you nuts, like the questioning and sort of make you insane. But to get the building projects done, of course, we have to keep schedules, we have to keep budgets. So, you know, there's a certain point where it's like, yes, we keep questioning, but we're going to do this and move forward with it. So you use basically this constant questioning from what I understand is, is more of a strength for you. It's like one of the... I mean, it has to be, right? It's just like, yeah, I try to, I try to be comfortable. Even when the projects are built, like I'm thinking about what should have been done differently, you know, in terms of massing and overall placement. And I mean, I mean I'm, I'm sure there are, I know other colleagues of mine that are the same way that are just, they will delay decision-making you know, architecture is complex thing. So sometimes certain decisions, it's better to make them when you're inside the building is kind of formed up and you can kind of like understand things a little better. So there's questioning and there's also like knowing how, what decisions need to be made when. So if you, if you found yourself in a creative rut, so to speak, what would you do to get out of it? Yeah, that's a good question. I have the opposite problem, actually. I don't know if they're a creative rut as much as like too many ideas <laughs> or too many interests. It's like the, what would be the opposite of a creative rut, like an over. So what I've been trying to do lately, I mean, I think if I were to look back at some of the early work and critique it, it would be like too many ideas, trying to do too much and, and trying to be more restrained, actually, I think is what our, our biggest, you know, in trying, I'm trying to figure out how like in the office we can improve the work, right? Like improve, like every project is an opportunity to kind of like improve it, whatever that means, like whether it's technically improve it technically or um, simple goals to like trying to make sure the client is happy. I mean, is really excited and happy at the end and not, uh, you know, worn out. But to go back to the question, I think that uh, on a broader terms it's like learning to practice restraint and buildings take a long time so one of the problems is i think it happens with the whole team which would be the client included is that sometimes you know after looking at the same thing for about six to nine months and it's not under construction people get kind of bored and they want to add things to it so i think that's the main creative challenge is, is hitting that right balance of like you know working within restraint but at the same time trying to develop a certain language of um a, a kind of looseness or freedom to it you know the problem with it, like too much restraint is that it can get a kind of oppressive but the, the same thing happens too with a lack of restraint uh, so well that reminds me of uh, and i'm a huge Mesian. that's a, a bit of a disclaimer but uh, <laughs> it reminds me of what he says less is more uh right that makes a lot of sense to me in, in that respect. Yeah. But I mean, just to add to that, I think there, there is, um, especially in projects that are more ambitious, we get a more ambitious client. 
Um, it's just like that, you know, when we were talking about materiality too, like showing material restraint, even though you have a budget, that's like $800 a square foot. It doesn't mean you have to use um, ePay, right. Or a Brazilian hardwood. You can like, so even, you know, it, it relates to budget too. And the sort of notion of the expectations of a project. Um, but that, finding how you can like increase the build the effectiveness of the building through through that kind of restraint it's hard though too because it's like Mies, he's like one person i mean it, it's really difficult to do because for every meese there's like a hundred people that it's just like a really it's simple ends up being completely really banal and a mm -hmm. lack of kind of thought and build ideas too so yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And conversely, you also see a lot of designs that are trying to hide the um, behind the, the the overly expressed materiality. So uh, I get it. It's it's an interesting question to ask. So outside of architecture, because you said you're kind of overflowing with creativity, do you have any other outlets that help you with channeling that? <laughs> Um, well, I have a family, you know, I've got a daughter and a wife and I like to spend time with them. Look, you know, I used to play violin. I, I always loved music and I used to play the violin and I stopped that about 15 years ago, which I, I, I wonder about like that. I, and, and it's, you know, I felt like I didn't have time to do it because I had, you know, these other, um, you know, what the building projects, we also had these sort of like experimental projects, the landscapes and the public artwork and that sort of thing. And it sort of took the place of that, uh, I guess, in a way, creatively, they're faster. They were easier. Um, they didn't have the same kind of the, the same thing. You know, it was a kind of like a, a sort of like faster, easier creative outlet doing those projects. So, um Kind of stop playing music which is kind of weird but it's sort of i think those those um experimental projects kind of took the place of that sense so you just mentioned your uh, public art practice mm -hmm. and that you run concurrently with your architectural firm um, what have you learned from running both at the same time well there um the the public artwork started as um when I was younger, I always did, even when I was in architecture school, I always did like little like competitions and that sort of thing on the side. I mean, they were just projects I was just doing for myself, right? Without anybody grading them or critiquing them or reviewing them or anything. And I started that like in first year, actually. Um, projects that I found interesting, I was kind of excited about, and I would just do them at night. Uh, and so I kind of always did that. Um, and when I had to practice and work in offices, uh, they weren't always the most interesting projects in the world. So they would, I would go back to those at night again. There would be like a competition or something, or, you know, when we started to get commissioned to do installations, they would be these kind of smaller experimental projects. So they kind of fulfilled the desire to be more creative in architecture, you know, and then slowly in the architecture practice, we began to get more and more interesting projects that aligned more with what my real interests were. I mean, this took like 15 years, right? Don't, I mean, it took years to build, to get to that point where you were actually getting building projects that you were really excited about. So I started working with my sister about 10 or 15 years ago, and it was a great sort of creative, it, it was really, really work. She was a visual artist. She studied first at um, OCA in Toronto, and then she studied at SVA in New York. 
So a similar path that I took, but in architecture, right? Like I went, started at University of Toronto and went to Cooper and she started OCA and then moved to New York and then went to SVA. But we had completely separate. We never talked about each other's work. We never collaborated on anything. And then we just tried it once and it, and it was really kind of fun and effective, really worked. So, um, so we would do one and it, for both of us, it was like a side thing. So we would do one every year or so, little things here and there. And then just in the last five years, it's, it, they've, and they grew in size too. They started really small. Sometimes it'd be a competition or a little like commission, $5,000 commission from a city to do some little piece. And then it's kind of grown. So we're doing much bigger projects now. Um, we have five or six of them. Um, so, so it's funny how both the architecture has evolved to become something that is very fulfilling and creative. Like they're very interesting clients and they're really interesting, challenging projects that kind of align with my own interests. But then at the same time, public artwork for now, anyway, we have four or five projects that are require staff and they require, you know, they're, they're much bigger kind of projects. So they've kind of like, in a way, these two practices are kind of like, <laughs> kind of merged into one another. That, that's very interesting. Um, so you touched on uh, your relation with your clients a couple of times through this conversation. If um, some of your clients were to describe your your best work on an emotional level what do you think they would say mm. how it, uh, more specifically how it made them right. feel right right i mean it's that's every you know it's, it's funny like with clients and past work like we have our clients that we hear from all the time like whenever i see them they're like they tell me oh we love the house we love being in the house and then other clients i mean not that i don't think they like the houses but they're maybe um like we just don't hear, we don't get that much feedback from them. Um, it, it's always really gratifying when the client really, you get the feeling like after seeing them year, years later that they genuinely really love being in a place. I mean, I guess the comments that I've gotten back that I find really satisfying would be like that, um, you know, they feel really at, at peace, I guess, in a place that, you know, has a serenity to it that they, you know, but that, that's rare. It doesn't happen very often. So, yeah, but that, that's an interesting question. Like the clients, some clients are much more aggressive is not the right word, but have really specific ideas about what they want. And, or they'll have seen something that we've done and say, we want something like that. And then other clients will be uh, a little more hands off. They'll not give us a lot of direction. So are so, you, are you able to identify a specific type of character that you'd enjoy working with more? <laughs> more? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. I guess the, uh, what seems to work is when we work with clients that are really, um, like appreciate architecture and really love architecture. They don't have to know a lot about it or have, you know, looked at architecture. And I mean, and we're fortunate now to have several, you know, have clients like that now that are, are really appreciate architecture um, earlier on, you know, when you got jobs, when you had, when I had less work, less of the body of work out there and less stuff published and that sort of thing, you'd get clients because it was like a friend of a friend had recommended you or, you know, and you'd meet them and they'd be like, Oh, we want to, you know, I mean, it could be as simple as like, do you do, you know, uh, like classical style houses? <laughs> we want a house that's like Italian style or something. 
can be as simple as that. And, you know, you say, usually say, no, somebody else is better at that. But now, you know, that with the internet, I mean, there's a lot more work out there. Clients are pretty educated. Like they've researched tons of people and they might select three or five to interview. I mean, the clients have a lot of options now. And, and honestly, they could probably like, no matter who they pick, they would probably get a great house or great, you know. So I think so often it's like about just sort of you spend a lot of time with somebody when you're designing for them. So it's like clicking. It's like that kind of with a lot of things, right? Like you're hiring somebody, you tend to probably lean towards somebody who you just kind of like click with, right? And kind of get along with. Either you're like, don't know where the person's coming from, or you kind of right away kind of understand a person. So it's kind of works that way in architecture too. So I'd like to go back to Austin a little bit, because uh, we touched on that at the beginning of this conversation. Um, what do you think is unique about Austin and how does it compare to Toronto? Talking about two yeah. cities that you know well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, well, first of all, it's urbanistically, it's Austin is, it took a while for me to get used to it. It's a typical American city in, in that respect, like urbanistically. Um, it's sprawling. It is, uh, Small but huge, small in population, but has this huge footprint because of the sprawl and everyone drives everywhere. And you know, I grew up in Toronto and then moved to New York City. They're really dense cities that have like a smart scale to them and you know, range of public transportation. And uh, so that though there are stark differences there. Austin has changed a lot since I moved here. Like when I first moved here, the downtown was completely empty at night, and now it's the opposite, it's like full of life really vibrant. So there's like a lot of improvements urbanistically that have occurred because it's such a popular city. It's kind of growing. Um, so it took a while to kind of get a, my head around that. Like everybody drives. First, it was novel, right? You go to a, out to a club with some friends and it's like, there's nine people there. And everybody has a car. <laughs> so then you go somewhere else and it's like nine people driving. Toronto wasn't like that. We were always taking the streetcar, riding our bikes, right? Same thing in New York. Nobody had cars. So take a cab or you take the subway. But uh, I always had like good fabric. Austin didn't have good fabric. Um, Austin, Toronto has a really great industrial building stock, like older industrial building stock, like because it was in, there was a source of industry. Um, Austin has like, unlike like say San Antonio, which is spectacular building stock. I mean, amazing, beautiful old buildings. Austin, you know, is the university's here, uh, and the uh, but it was never a, it was never a city of industry. It was always government and education. So there's no good building stock. So the architecture actually kind of sucks in Austin, um, and that's one of the interesting things about it is that it survived. It almost like in a way, and I've had this conversation with a lot of architects now. Like it almost. Like it'll serve it, it, it thrives in spite of architecture. And what I mean by that is, is you, you can go to the east side and you can go to like a one of the most popular clubs. It's moved now, it was called Cheer Up Charlie's. And it was basically a dirt vacant lot with trailers on it. And it, it was almost like it was like architecture would have killed it. So that's sort of like an interesting, really subtle thing that goes on here is that Austin has this kind of, and for better or worse, it's sort of like party 
sort of this party city where people fly in for these kind of like festival weekends. And it has this kind of crazy festival thing. There's a festival every weekend here, whether it's like a music festival or like a barbecue festival or whatever, a book festival. And so it has this weird sort of like pop-up thing where it's like culturally very rich, but very temporary at the same time. Um, and whereas Toronto is like, it has a much more kind of orthodox established, you know, like those kind of like instantaneous things don't really occur that often, it seems in Toronto as they do here. I mean, America is a country of extremes and Austin is like this little kind of like liberal hippie island in the middle of like, obviously extremely conservative, but it's extremes, right? Like you have this, and uh, Toronto is different. Toronto is actually like super conservative, more conservative. It's like the conservative island in, in, within Canada, um, which is kind of like an interesting thing. I mean, Toronto always had this sort of reputation of being like the, uh, you know, yuppie capital of Canada or the, um, you know, finance where the that was kind of center of commerce and that sort of thing. Austin's a very strange city. I don't know where it's going exactly, but it's moving really fast wherever it's going. So you, men you mentioned earlier very briefly uh, some of the creative scene in Austin and specifically uh, Richard Linklater and Detour uh -huh. Films. Uh, do you actually know those guys? How do, I mean, does I, that influence you in yeah. any way? Well, my, when, when, I, when I first moved to, I moved to Austin, uh, a friend of mine, Athena Sangari, uh, who I had known in New York was living here. And I moved, I kind of came down to visit her and she had worked, she had been working on um, um, Dazed and Confused. Mm -hmm. She was working on Dazed and Confused and my wife was also working on that. My, my wife was working on it as well and they kind of met. Um, so when I moved down here, I actually first met Rick Linklater in New York when, so he was, um, when he was trying to raise money for Slacker, um, he had, he and D Montgomery and, um, Gary Price, who had, they were working on it together, were, had come to Angelica Film Center to, um, to the film market to kind of show a rough cut of it to raise money for it. So that's where I first met him. And, uh, and then when I moved to Austin, um, and it was just a really small film community down here. I mean, I don't know him that well, but you know, I've met him a few times. Uh, I think he's a really great, inspiring guy. I mean, he stayed in Austin, you know, he had every opportunity to kind of move to Los Angeles and, and that sort of thing. So I think Austin film society is a really great, they just opened a movie venue and they have grants for experimental filmmakers. And, and it started as just like, you know, these guys showing movies and, you know, their house for their friends. And it's grown into this thing that's like really supports a kind of film culture here. That's, that's very interesting. So, um, staying on the topic of movies, do you have a favorite movie? Oh, good question. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Chris Marker. So like La Jete, um, Sans Soleil, also like, uh, you know, these are like architects cliches, right? Like Antonio's great Eclipse is like one of my favorite movies. They used to have this tradition of watching every year in the summertime. I should do that again. It's the middle of the summer, but, uh, yeah, I'd say like Eclipse and yeah, I just like really attracted those, those, you know, kind of like formally. So why would, would you like those movies? Um, I think Eclipse is like, um, that movie again, like it's a movie that I watch almost every watch, like once a year, 
it's just, a, it's, I mean, first of all, the strangeness of it. You know, I mean, I think that the, the like, particularly Eclipse, but some of his other movies, like the setting, you know, is, is a, like such a central kind of character in the filmmaking um, and really comes to the foreground in, in a kind of strange way. I mean, the movies are for, full of all of these like really interesting kind of like formal tricks, which are, um, and, and they're very controlled in a certain way, but um, you know, he had like a love, I mean, in Eclipse, there's like all these amazing, it takes place in Rome, right? But you never see like old Rome. It's always like on the outskirts with water towers and strange, like modernist apartment blocks. And it just has this very kind of like empty mid-century kind of aesthetic to it. The ending is really strange. Like I can't quite figure out, I almost think the movie had this idea that the movie was like a film in reverse. It has a strange ending where the couple, the two lovers, are like supposed to meet at this corner, and it's a construction site on the corner, um, and and he's always like drawing your attention to these like little details, like the bucket of water and like kind of like a pile of bricks, and it's like something kind of interesting about the setting being like that building under construction. It's almost like is it go is it going backwards in construction or forwards? But there's this very strange ending where. He, uh, the couple's supposed to meet. They're like the last scene is like they're together. They're laughing. They're like, okay, I'll meet you on such and such a corner. And then the next scene, you're like at the corner, and it's like you're waiting for them, and they never show up, right? So a bus comes and leaves. A person walks by, and you think is it her, and it's not her. It's just this weird moment where it's like, where are they? <laughs> where, where did they go? And you realize that maybe, maybe it's like the beginning of the movie before they met. Right. Like, so you've gone backwards in time or maybe it's like maybe they never existed. I don't know. But it's just it draws your attention to the setting. Right. And your expectation of what's going to occur within that intersection. It's like at an intersection building under construction. So there's this weird like energy and expectation of something, but nothing ever happens. So it's almost like it's, it's sort of like a model for architecture. Right. That it'll set up the best architecture, which kind of sets up certain conditions a certain poignancy or expectation, but never really fulfills it. So yeah, that movie has always been a huge influence. I'll be sure to check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Check out Eclipse. So on the, on the topic of favorites, uh, and we're going towards the last couple of questions here, what's your favorite building and why? Uh, yeah, I have like so many, man. Um, where to start there? I mean, there's definitely some highlights buildings. I never tire of looking at like Sigrid Lawrence. I've always found like super interesting. Um, Gunnar Asplund, like lands, like Woodlawn Cemetery, like Sigrid Lawrence's flower shop in Malmo. It's always been super inspiring. It's um, a little tiny flower kiosk in the cemetery in Malmo. Um, it's, it's an amazingly inventive building. It's really inspiring. It's small, kind of low budget and just like endlessly interesting. And, and of course, like, I've, you know, hugely influenced by Louis Kahn, you know, we're s surrounded by the buildings here. One of the great, I think, buildings of the 20th century, the Kimball Art Museum in, in Dallas is, you know, th these are like hugely influential buildings for any architect, you know, in any, I mean, anywhere really, but here. Um, I think when I, if I were to pinpoint a moment when I chose to not pursue filmmaking and to go into architecture, was halfway through first year, Barry Sampson took us, he was our, my teacher in first year, took us on a tour of um, architecture in Buffalo. So we went and looked at some Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Sullivan. And, and I just, I remember that was like a moment when it was like, yes. <laughs> okay, this is what it can be. 
me. I mean, I found them interesting now, but when I was a teenager, first year architecture student, I just was not, it it seemed dead to me. And then we visited the Unitarian Church in Rochester, and there was something about that building, like, that just hit me like a lightning bolt, and it really blew me away. Like, it was one of the few moments in architecture, like, I live a lot in my head. I very rarely, and also, like, a lot of buildings that I visited like say Ronchamp, I've studied before I visited them. So I'd already was kind of mentally prepared for an experience. So very rarely have I had a kind of experience of a building that really kind of grabbed me like that. I'd never heard of Louis Kahn before and visited the Unitarian Church. And it was just like a remarkable building. And it was at that moment I thought, this, I could do this. This would be, you know, that, that would be a worthwhile pursuit in life. So that was, so a, it was a Kahn building? Yeah, it's the Unitarian Church in Rochester which is one of his important buildings, but certainly not like the, one of the most important. And there was something about it's, there, there, it just, it reaches back in time somehow to a very profound place. At the same time, they're very contemporary. Like he has this, his buildings have this weird way of like looking both ways. Like they're at the same time, super weird and modern and futuristic. And at the same time, they're ancient. I just don't know of any other architect that maybe hits those notes in the same way. But that was after that trip, I was like, I wasn't even thinking about filmmaking anymore. I was like, architecture was it. So the Kimball Art Museum in Dallas, you know, of course, I drove up to see that building when I first moved to Austin uh, in my late 20s. And uh, another ex- kind of similar experience. It doesn't, it's a weird building. Like, it, I, I didn't really kind of get its number from books. I, I mean, I didn't really understand what, what was all that about it. But then going and seeing it was another one of those experiences like, oh, my God, yes, okay. I get it now, right? This is like a weird, you know, train shed from, you know, the you know, 11th century or something. It was just, it's a very unusual building. Just really incredible. The Salk Institute, not so much. The Salk, I find, like, we have a project in San Diego. So I always go visit the Salk. Like, after our meetings, I'll drive up there and hang out for dinner or whatever. Um, it, it's a super intriguing building. It's a little, to me, like too much of a temple or something like it's a little bit like I kind of get it and it's an incredible building but it's a little like too much of like a wow factor or something like it's right on the ocean it feels like a temple like up high or looking over the water like you're in the Greek islands or something Mm -hmm. but uh but definitely like the Kimball I'd say um Renzo Piano's de Manille like not the uh, Nasher in in Dallas like we're fortunate to have some like remarkable buildings really close by but the Nasher, I'm not that into piano, but the um, Dimonil is a really remarkable building. He was really young when he did it. It's, it's, it's very high tech, but very folksy at the same time. It's wooden. It's all like wood siding. And uh, at the same time, it has these remarkable cast louvers. Um, he really kind of understood. It was one of the first buildings where he was like really trying to manipulate light with the ceiling. Um, so that, those, those have been pretty influential. Yes, that's, that's to name a few. I actually shared the same experience with the Kimball when uh, I hadn't read up too much about it when I went and I had this almost quasi-religious experience by <laughs> spending the day there. And I was, I, to right. this day, it's been almost 10 years and to this day, I still remember yeah. vividly everything yeah. I've experienced there. It was yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, so we're getting on to the last question. Um, stones or beetles? <laughs> Oh man, neither, you know, I was never really, I don't know. I never really, uh, actually it's funny. I was more like, uh, Lou Reed cult, David Bowie 
Yeah, that makes sort of thing. There's no wrong answer, you know? There's no wrong answer. Uh, like Adelic furs, that sort of thing. But mm -hmm. yeah, I never really kind of got the Beatles. Stones may, I guess they'd lean more towards the one stones. I had to pick one. It seems to become one of the architects. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so that's, uh, that sums it up for me. Um, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to answer those few questions. And, oh, yeah, uh, thanks. It was fun. Uh, hopefully our listeners will enjoy the answers as much as I did. All right, cool. Thank Thanks, you. Arno. Appreciate it. Great conversation. Hi again, everyone. Arno here. I really hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Remember that you can find us online at rvltr.studio or on Instagram and Twitter at revelator underscore Until next time, salut!